future of SMART, a project of Grantmakers for Education, will explore ideas at the intersection of education, equity, and philanthropy that point us towards a radical re-envisioning of our education system. We'll hear from those working at the edge of what's possible and explore what it means to support transformative change for young people and their communities. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Future of Smart podcast, a project of Grantmakers for Education. My name is Olga Joshi Hansen, Chief Program Officer of EdFunders, author of the book The Future of Smart, and your host. In the 250 years since the Industrial Revolution, we've invented technology and artificial intelligence that can better handle and even replicate the abstract cognitive skills that continue to be the backbone of our education curriculum. Last week, there were dozens of articles in the news about GPT-3, an app that uses artificial intelligence to write everything from poetry to graduate-level essays in response to a prompt. The app, along with dozens of others that generate everything from mathematical and literacy analyses to art, invites some serious reflection about what grade-level standards in subjects including reading, writing, and math actually mean, and whether they should be the focus of educational accountability systems. We've seen how a narrow focus on these areas results in our system pathologizing and marginalizing minds that operate differently at the exact moment when the world needs the creative problem solving that emerges from different kinds of minds working together. Beyond failing to prepare young people for the realities of adulthood, the pressures of a stratified, competitive, alienating, and highly unequal education system have also accelerated an epidemic of youth unwellness. The question is, how do we meaningfully change how we do education to reflect the realities of the world young people will actually enter, as opposed to the world in which the system was created? As we've explored in past episodes, change in human-centered systems, like schools or learning ecosystems, doesn't happen in response to increased pressure from the outside or by tweaking individual elements in the hopes of creating comprehensive results. It happens by creating conditions that invite change from within. These deeper changes then radiate outward at all levels, ultimately changing the very nature of how the system as a whole operates. In past episodes, we've heard from system, district, and program leaders who are taking different approaches to creating just this sort of change. But for the most part, they find themselves working against educational systems and policies that aren't designed to allow, yet alone actively support, this type of emergent change. As a result, the vast majority of what this podcast describes as human-centered programs exist outside of the public education system, or seem destined to remain bright spots, accessible only to some young people and in only some highly resourced communities. As we wind down Season 1, I'm excited to sit down with some amazing individuals who are leaders in the field of education philanthropy generally and in the work of building more human-centered schools, experiences, and ecosystems specifically. My guest today is Kenji Trainer of the Stewart Foundation, which has worked to improve the well-being of children in California and Washington State through investments in public education, child welfare, and youth development. 
The foundation recently undertook a strategic assessment of its past giving as it explores future strategies with a specific focus on adolescents who are furthest from opportunity. I had an opportunity to speak with Kenji about the concept of human flourishing and how the foundation hopes to navigate away from narrow definitions of achievement toward an approach that supports a well-rounded education that builds on the assets and strengths that young people already have. I especially appreciated Kenji's observation on the role philanthropy can play as an enabler of new educational policies and approaches rather than as a driver. Rather than identifying and investing in specific models and approaches, what if philanthropy could work with the field to identify flexible yet critical design principles that could be adopted, adapted, and implemented by local actors within their own contexts? We discussed how this could change how we define and measure impact and how we invite people, including boards and others primarily responsible for governance, into conversations about what we might build together in service of young people. Join me as we explore these and other ideas with Kenji Trainer, Vice President of Strategy, Partnerships, and Learning at the Stewart Foundation. Welcome, Kenji. Thanks for being here today. Hi, happy to be here. So I want to start where we always start, um, which is you as a person, because our personal stories always uh, have an impact on where we go and what we do. So tell us a little about your personal journey and why you choose to spend your career working on the issues you do. Yeah, thanks. You know, my personal journey as an individual is is really tied to my larger family journey. And my family has two sides that are different, but also I think similar in interesting ways. Uh, my mother's side is Japanese American family with roots in Hawaii. My father's side is Irish Catholic from Boston. Um, in those two different family trajectories, there are, you know, there's immigration story. There's also the reality, whether you're talking about plantations or whether you're talking about labor industry in New England, um, a context of limited opportunity really around pursuing and continuing education um, and then struggles to find avenues into workforce and economic opportunity. Um, but moving through the generations of the family, by the time we get to, to myself and my brother, we ended up in a place where, you know, our parents through non-traditional means had gone to college, but they were able to sort of break through and get to that milestone. And so for my brother and I, we benefited from that and we had, um, the ability to, to, I think, think differently about our choices. Um, and so I was very cognizant of that. And when I came into adulthood, really wanted to reflect about what should I do with this privilege that I've been afforded? And, um, a career and a life spent in service, um, and particularly the nonprofit sector, you know, ultimately felt like a calling and, and, and drew me in. Um, I also came of age as a young person when, uh, in California, there were a set of ballot initiatives and public policy changes and moves happening, um, that didn't feel particularly inclusive and particularly fair. And so I was also aware of that and thinking about the fact that, I had under a different period of time with my family circumstance been able to benefit and uh, from opportunities in society and, and felt like that should then be afforded to others that are coming after me. And so uh, for those young people that are still going through school, that are trying to figure out how to make their way in the world, uh, what can be done to ensure that they still have uh, an expansive set of 
opportunities and possibilities that they can fully grow into. Thanks so much. That's great. So I want to dig into how you're spending your time these days. The Stewart Foundation announced a new strategy uh, early in 2022. Tell us a bit about that and why the foundation decided to invest in the particular period of life that it's beginning to focus more on. I would describe our current strategy actually as more of a refinement or of an evolution. Um, There are many elements of the foundation's long-held values and vision that in fact are not changed. And those things date back to more than 35 years since the foundation was first founded uh, in, in this current form. And you know where we are now, I think through this strategy refresh process is really to hold on to those values and vision, really the what and the why of our strategy, um, but feel like this is a, the right time and moment to evolve our how the choices we make about um, how to move towards those those values and vision. Um, that really brought us to a particular focus on, on thriving adolescence. And the rationale for thriving adolescence um, really was because the foundation, looking back, had already historically been doing a fair amount of work um, that engaged substantially with young people in this developmental stage. So for our partners, for our trustees, you know, maintaining that, being more clear about young people in that developmental stage was a way for us to try to keep continuing um, value for our partners and and for the field, I think. Um, The second piece of, of sort of why adolescence really draws from our understanding engagement with sort of the the newer set of research and scholarship about brain science and the science of learning and development, uh, which continues to show what a really compelling and dynamic and high potential period of growth that um, adolescence is if young people can be fully supported. Um, And and, and then the other part of, of the rationale for this choice around adolescence is probably the most important. And really, we wanted to anchor our strategy with an explicit moral imperative. And as we tried to diligently scan and see where public and private investments are going and being directed to see where nonprofit organizations and other partners were putting their efforts, we saw significant concentrations in the early years, um, as well as a focus on college and post-secondary credential attainment uh, for those young people, of course, that are able to transition and participate in post-secondary education. We were struck by how few resources and organizations seem to be placing a priority on adolescence. And, you know, this isn't totally data informed. We get beyond the scan at this point, but I think some of our more textural sense was that there is still a kind of sticky and persistent belief or attitude that, quote unquote, adolescence is too late that it's too late for meaningful supports, for interventions, for opportunities that can change young people's trajectories. And, you know, morally, we feel like it's important to operate from a belief that all young people at any stage of their development have the capacity to flourish. And the responsibility really lies with us because we have resources 
The vast majority of California adolescents who are engaged in public education are low-income students of color. So that's a very concrete way in which this evolution in your strategy furthers racial justice and equity aims. Are there other ways you see this work contributing to conversations and efforts around racial justice? We're really striving for a strategy that can elevate the assets of young people, um, their strengths, what they already contain as um, you know, just really fantastic capabilities. And we want to be able to elevate those assets in a way that's also consistent with the realities and the conditions in which they're already living their lives. Um, they are already intersexual. They are fully integrated, multidimensional human beings. And so we have to, um, you know, keep that in mind. We know that there are inequities in communities and um, that there are differentials around, even in the same community, what different young people will experience in school. And so we are also trying to, to keep that um, very much in mind with an active sense of listening and trying to discern, not just for ourselves, but really in a way that supports educators and supports the adults who do the work day in and day out to um, support young people's growth and development, that they really are equipped, those adults are equipped with an ability to hear young people, to make sense of what's going on with them that spans some of these differential and oftentimes inequitable um, conditions, um, and, and yet are able to respond in a way that is fully affirming of each individual young people, young person, and then collectively, um, you know, all young people together. So Kenji, if we were 20 years from now, and you think about some of the, the projects or programs or ideas that you're excited about, um, what would, what would we be talking about in terms of how Stewart's investments have changed the experience of young people in California? Just one example to make this real, a little bit real. Sure. We won't hold you to it. <laughs> um, you know, if, if I just take one example, um, what is the role of young people to really participate actively with their voices, with a sense of agency in how their schools are designed and how their schools are governed can think about how young people themselves can, um, you know, express choices about things like participatory budgeting as a, in California, as a part of the local control funding formula, for example, um, or how young people can, um, really have a significant say over, you know, what their project-based learning or uh, work-based or community embedded learning might look like. There's different avenues and forms that we think can exist in the full scope of public education that are still really meant to have young people feel that sense of self-direction that are meant to enable adults, educators in the school systems, again, to have direct input, direct feedback from young people to shape then what their learning looks like and what are the resources and um, decisions that really still sit oftentimes with adults in schools and school systems in response to that input and feedback. Adolescence in particular is a developmental period in which that sense of youth agency and youth voice uh, really is critical 
for positive development and that sense of I'm here, I matter, I want to make a contribution back to this collective endeavor. Again, that can take the flavor of youth organizing all the way to, you know, how young people provide feedback and express um, their viewpoint about curricular content. There's a whole wide range, but we think that those are some of the means through which over the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years, the more and more of that can be cultivated. We have high faith and confidence that um, schools and school systems engaged in that kind of um, relationship with young people will really lead to fundamentally different outcomes. So I have I have two teenage boys. They're 15 and 13. And I've been thinking a lot recently about adolescence and the narratives about adolescence and this tension that even I as a parent feel. I totally want to give them voice and I totally want to listen to their critiques and what they're saying. And more often than I like, they're right. And as an adult, I I find it hard to let go of sort of power and my position. And I'm, you've been around and you've worked um, in nonprofits and in the community. I'm curious, how is this going to land? Because I feel like there's a there's a gap between what people say they want young people to be able to do, and then actually being willing to listen and act on what young people say because it's too easy to dismiss them. Like, does that strike does that strike a chord with you at all, or is it just me? No, it, it, it does. Absolutely. And I, I think we are under no false pretense that it will be easy. Um, I do think that the, from my view at the foundation, I, I would look back at two, two strands, one of which probably you could pull back 25 years, 30 years. And, and it's really a strand around what we used to call in the field youth development. And a set of ideas and approaches, again, oftentimes first prioritizing the fact that a young person should have a relationship with a caring adult, and that should be a positive relationship. If you think about some of um, the work of Karen Pittman or others who were really critical in shaping this understanding of what does quality youth development look like, that's been around for quite a while. And many, as you named, probably more community-based settings have really drawn upon those approaches. Um, if we think, t- think take a more contemporary example, the last number of years with the stresses of the pandemic, with um, the murder of George Floyd and in a very um, present sort of social conversation about race, those are all things that have also made for adolescents in particular school a very different place and a very different experience. And I think the adults are seeing that. And so the response to young people now that is about their healing, about their well-being, about their sense of feeling safe, secure, and optimistic around their futures. If you take that empathy and that response that I think many teachers and adults and educators are holding now, and you combine it with this orientation to youth development practice and to principles and stances that high quality youth development can bring inside schooling and inside the educational context, I think it can really um, help maybe bridge past that point of tension and discomfort that you named, which is fundamentally about change 
and how do we do change and why do we do change? And I think um, the why seeing adolescence and, and what they've been experiencing in the last couple of years, the why is clear. And, and I believe that some uptake of youth development practices could really be helpful in terms of the how uh, to, to, to move us to a, a, a different way where young people in their relationship with adults are feeling heard. It's interesting you mentioned Karen, because when I think about Karen, part of what I think she advocates for is certainly education learning from the lessons of youth development, but actually more cracking open how we think about education so that the artificial line we've created between this thing called school and this thing called life, where young people are inside of their communities, kind of um, gets dissolved. Like if you had to think 20 to 30 years from now, what are we trying to move towards? Are we trying to move towards a kind of education system that simply does a little bit more of the youth development kind of focus and brings in more or really having cracked learning open into ecosystems of communities where young people are, especially adolescents, um, are going out to learn and really their learning and the lives they want to live and the people they want to become are sort of converging in their experiences. Which are we trying to get to like 20 to 30 years from now? I think it's the latter and and my articulation around youth development is really a, I'm positing whether that could be a first step on that journey to a much fuller and, and different destination in terms of what education looks like intentionally, right? Because I think in many places, that's already what education looks like now. And in some cases, it's because those young people actually have privilege and they can find the different mechanisms that already exist, even though we're supposed to be, you know, quote unquote, operating the system as it is currently designed, which isn't oriented to that larger ecosystem. But there are many young people with privilege that find the means and the cracks in how the system is currently constructed to be able to go do that. There are other young people, largely with less privilege, who are also taking a lot of their learning and a lot of their developmental experiences outside of school. That may often be through work. That may often be through engagement and um, the necessity to do things that are not a part of how school is set up to work. And so I think we already have to some degree an inequitable and hybridized reality of where young people are spending their time and therefore where young people are having experiences that can affirmatively accelerate and support their development or are still going to be consequential for their development, but largely about more immediate priorities and immediate needs that those young people are um, confronting. You know, again, I think about the number of adolescents, the number of high school students, for example, who, you know, have either opted out of completing high school, opted out of making transitions to post-secondary. A lot of those young people are engaged in workforce activities. That is learning outside of quote unquote, the school and the school system. Um, you know, on the other hand, you have many young people that are thinking very differently about, can they make a case to their school that they should be allowed to do a senior capstone or they should be allowed to do dual enrollment or something along those lines. We, we are seeing we're seeing this play out. I firmly believe we're already seeing it play out that young people know there's only so much that they're going to get from school the way it's currently organized. 
and they need or want more than that. The question is, can we do that in a more universally available way, in a more equitable way, in a way that equips the adults in the lives of those young people to help them navigate those different contexts? And we've heard from you know past guests of places where there are, to your point, individual programs, whether it's expeditionary learning or big picture or alternative high schools or urban assembly or um, you know Vista Unified District. But we're doing it in pockets to kind of shift the system. So uh, there's two directions I want to go. So let's start first with philanthropy, because in many ways the conventional way of thinking about education is this place that we take kids, we put them in, they learn, and then they go back home and they do other things, um, right? That, that comes out of a particular mindset and vision of what education is. And conventional philanthropy has kind of done something similar in the sense of like breaking apart parts of the education system. So we fund in pre-K or we fund in K-12 or post-secondary or workforce. Um, do you see the kind of siloing of dockets or areas of funding as contributing to the problem? And what, what do you think would help to kind of help move us in the direction you're talking about, where these things begin to blend together um, a bit more? Yeah, I, I, I definitely agree with that. It, it, it strikes a chord um, that is you know very resonant. I think philanthropy has organized itself oftentimes in this way because that's how we see public systems have been organized. Right. And has enabled particular foundations to perhaps rightly so bring a tighter strategic focus to their work or for other foundations that has enabled them to develop a, an identity for their organization based on a particular segment or, you know, um, area of, 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 of engagement. I, I think, and this is more my personal view that rather than education philanthropy being segmented by age or certain grades or how the system itself has created a disconnected early learning ecosystem and then a K-12 ecosystem and then a community college or workforce or four-year ecosystem, um, you know, what, what does it look like if we're cognizant about learning conditions, the kinds of supports that are needed? Um, for young people, and especially if we draw on this deeper understanding of human development and a non-linear and a fluid way in which any one young person can and will grow, that to me, I think would be potentially also coupled with a more expansive and relevant set of indicators that enable an assessment of how well systems are doing to provide environments and conditions that can work for many different youth in a more fluid and non-linear way. Um, and then of course, in addition to that input analysis, what are the outcomes? What are the positive progress that can be seen um, as a result of what you, young people are experiencing from the system or multiple systems? And, and that kind of an orientation to thinking about what really is it that we want for young people that they are saying that they need? How do we flex our own um, accountability and resourcing decisions in response to what young people are saying they need with this human-centered, nonlinear, 
more fluid understanding of how development happens. Right now, I agree with you, it's probably small pockets, but those pockets matter. And whether it is around alternative schools or, you know, our foundation has a very long history of um, doing work related to youth that are experiencing the foster care system. These are critical examples that really show what it looks like when the system itself is freed of particular mandates about X milestone by Y time. And the reality, again, this understanding and belief that any young person at any stage regardless of quote unquote deficits that may have existed previously is now and can going forward really be um, thriving. That I think we have seen particular schools, we've seen small networks of schools, we've seen, um, you know, intentionally designed programs that allow for that to really work well. Uh, and so those, I think, are system design elements that I would argue um, philanthropy with its strong predisposition to bright spots. What do we do with those bright spots? And how do we help those bright spots really not be about particular models per se, but one level up in terms of design principles? And can those design principles then really be brought back into a different conversation about um, the system writ large. I really think of this as, you know, what has been on the margins that we could in fact bring into the center. Hmm. And, you know, in the past, I think we heard a lot about scaling, right? So you take a bright spot and you scale it as opposed to spreading it, which is, it's not going to look the same, but you're going to take the design principles and you're going to seed them in lots of different places, knowing that it's going to look a little bit different. Um, but, you know, you talked about the one level up, I think of it as infrastructure, right? When you talk about how do you assess differently or how do you use time differently or how do you hold programs um, accountable differently, that it's it's the architecture of systems that either allow these bright spots to become more prevalent or prevent them from doing it. And I think one of the conversations, at least I've been hearing, is parents, students, educators, funders, you know, policymakers really seeing the limits of what our current education infrastructure allows us to do. So it feels like we need to invest in building a new architecture that is more ecological in the way that it's designed. And that feels out of reach for the public system right now, both in terms of the amount of money it would take, the time it would take, sort of patient capital, the ability to sort of convene and really stay, stay with something over time. Um, in other fields, when we need to build new infrastructure, we often look to public-private partnerships. And I'm wondering if you see philanthropy playing a role in kind of public-private par partnership to build a new infrastructure structure for education. I, I do. And I think if I, um, you know, carry forward with your hypothesis, I think we've seen how private philanthropy has helped um, do this in the past. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about um, a nation at risk, or other efforts that little did we know at the time really 
had a consequential effect on setting a course that was 10 years or 20 years or 30 years. And what you're describing now about the practical realities of constructing a new infrastructure, assuming that it is based on, you know, an approach of spreading design principles, you know, I think that that will um, be possible if we envision the role of philanthropy as being less of a driver and more of a enabler. And I think the opportunity for philanthropy to support ideas and research and framing about the need for this, to have philanthropy support the fact that there will be a lot of discourse. There will need to be a lot of stakeholder conversation and aligning going on. The reality is that we have the current system we have where many of those limitations and mandates and you know sanctions come down from federal and state policy structures. And those are enacted through our political process. I absolutely hear you that I think many families and students and communities are hungry for something else. And yet we still see that through our political process, the resourcing and accountability for public education isn't always a high, high, high priority. And so I do think that the role of philanthropy to support the infrastructure is probably to support the kinds of things that will enable a larger mass desire and uh, will around the fact that that infrastructure should exist and what it should look like. And that's where I, I, to me, that's what I think the enabling role of philanthropy could be a driving role of philanthropy that I think is a lot more perilous is if philanthropy itself tries to, um, and we've seen this, I think it, as you alluded to in, in prior examples of direct scaling, if philanthropy tries to, um, more directly insert a set of ideas or models um, and or if philanthropy tries to say this is what we think the infrastructure should look like a b c d um, there is still a, a a real challenge about the fact that not everyone has had the opportunity to participate and ultimately bring themselves to an agreement about what should be happening and mm -hmm. That those I think those are some of the the challenges for us in philanthropy when we often are practice oriented, we are often even policy oriented, um, but there always remains sort of a political backdrop. And we, of course, also many, you know, funders and donors have um, for tax and legal reasons, boundaries around their political engagement as well.
Um, but, but it's there and it's something I think for us to consider that would tie back to your question about what will it take to get to a new infrastructure and what is the role of private philanthropy in supporting that. Um, I cannot envision that kind of an infrastructure really being successful and really maintaining a degree of equity protection if we don't see the public systems through a more, um, and in response to a more organized kind of public will mm-hmm. engage in that work. Yeah, no, uh, building public will is a, is a huge part of this. And what I think is interesting is post-COVID, you're seeing very interesting coalitions of groups on both what we would consider the left and the right, folks who... Uh, who are all kind of pointing at the public education system and saying, this isn't working for us. I'm going to look for microschooling, black homeschooling, you know, groups are growing. So it's, it's an interesting moment to think about leaning into the public will and, and creating a vision for what people want. Cause I think in some ways, oftentimes families know they want something different, but they're not always clear what the different could look like. Um, and so elevating the bright spots and getting some sort of a consensus that actually, we need and want something different because the world is different for the ki- for our kids. And so we've need, you know, it's not going to look like a better version of what you went to school and did. Um, it may potentially look really, really different. And that consensus building exactly, I think what I'm referring to when I say the role of philanthropy to support enabling. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that is so place-based. I'm thinking about uh, Deanna James, who was a prior guest who talked about the village. Like, what is my village and how can I mobilize my village to kind of be in a community conversation that that enables us to do something different? But, you know, to your point about not being able to kind of find space in the public system, I think alternative high schools are a fascinating example of how you can carve out space um, for something different. It's just that alternative high schools, kids have to suffer through eight years of a system that's really dysfunctional for them. And then we finally say, well, you can get to an alternative high school and we will remove some restrictions around seat time and around, you know, you can be held accountable for your mission metrics as opposed to, you know, the standardized things. So it, it, it would be interesting to see how we could leverage that idea of carving out small categories um, of schools or programs that are trying to do certain things to enable pilots or enable kind of this, this building of new systems. And, and again, I think I might argue that, and you mentioned, you know, what parents are already doing on their own. I think, I think we're seeing some of that take place now, even in spite of a current system design and a current accountability um, set of priorities that would otherwise disincentivize those efforts. I think that there are places that are probably already moving in that direction, frankly, in spite of the system. Mm. And those may be places with resources and, you know, more of an ability to withstand the political friction that may come in response to the fact that they're doing something counter to the system. Can I clarify, are they doing it counter to the system inside the public system or are they leaving the public system and creating these sort of in a parallel, but more private or nonprofit sector? Yeah, I think you can probably see both. Um, I think that there are, you know, inside the public system, as you named, you know, you could take expeditionary learning, you could take any number of these approaches you see inside public systems 
opportunities for this kind of shift and change that may not be as far as we would ideally like, or that young people and their families are most importantly saying that they ideally would like to see, but it's already beginning to happen. Um, I think you have the other example of folks that are leaving the public system and trying to find other means to, to enact that. Um, again, I would worry about equity dimensions in both cases and um, the commitment that I think exists in, in a country where we still have compulsory education. It is not optional. We are requiring you and we are committed to providing you with a degree of public education. And I think un against that backdrop, then in particular, it, it puts in my mind this question about how to do that in a much more equitable way so that it isn't really the outliers only, whether they're in the system or out of the system, that it becomes much more, um, again, at, from the margin to the center, much more at the core of how we have designed a system, resources system, held a system accountable. Um, and that, again, keeping in mind, those design principles of the system aren't really for systems efficiency. They're for human development and flourishing and for what it takes to have young people thrive. And, you know, that I think comes from deepening our knowledge and understanding of really what is critical in human development. And it comes from having relationships and listening and being responsive to what young people are experiencing and, and the signs and signals and cues that they're giving back based on that. I want to come back to thriving and in particular, how we know when human beings thrive. But I do want to ask you, like, do you worry about the public education system right now because it feels as though there there's like a lot of cuts being made like both literal and figurative um, cuts being made in terms of trying to get dollars out of the system trying to move them into alternative systems and at a certain point it feels like our public education system is in danger of collapsing is that a worry for you yes I, I mean I think um I'm not even sure that I've let myself consider what a collapse looks like, but I do hear you and I do worry and I am concerned about um, the fact that public education matters and how we, again, going back to this idea of consensus and, and as you named, like what is the vision that a large group consensus can get behind? I think to some degree that also is tied into what are our different perspectives and understandings and views about the purpose of education and about the purpose of public education in particular. And I think some of those, um, the cleaving off of this from the public education system or that from the public education system um, may be because we either have you know, more narrow particular views of what the public education system should be doing. And it's easier to try and pursue that outside of the current context that so we'll cleave it off and just go right after that thing. Or, you know, even if there is a, an understanding that the public education system is in fact probably 
pursuing multiple purposes at the same time, how can that be done more coherently and in a way that is um, addressing a larger set of accountability and expectations? And we continue to have a relatively narrow set of accountability indicators and formal system expectations that are placed upon schools, uh, you know, still mostly about academic progress and academic progress that is itself defined in a very particular and specific way. Uh, and so, you know, it, it, it brings me back to the fact that I am concerned about public education and I am, I think no less, anchored on the idea that public education is essential for multiple purposes that aren't just about the individual good. They aren't just about my particular, as you said, place or region or village or community. There is also a critical set of purposes about, you know, for public education that are about an overall society that we are interested in shaping and forming. And the world is moving and really fast. Things are super challenging, whether it's climate, whether it's politics, whether it's economy, whether it's healthcare, et cetera. And it's undeniable that we need future generations to be fully capable of seeing those things, not feeling overrun by those challenges, but in fact, you know, instigated and activated in response to those challenges, drawing upon hopefully a rich and diverse set of learning and development experiences that they've already had. That I view is what public education can do and can do quote unquote at scale. That <laughs> is really hard to see happening through smaller and more disparate means. Yeah. Yeah. So that takes us back to flourishing, right? When I when I hear what you're saying, I'm like you want every person to flourish and to not kind of feel overwhelmed and as though there's nothing they can do. Flourishing is tough if that's what we make the purpose of education. How do we measure that? How do we know? And sometimes I feel like because we answer that question up front and the answer is it's complicated or it would be hard to standardize, or it might be dangerous to standardize, we sort of avoid it. But how, like, if that's the direction we're going, what conversations do we have to have about how do we know? On what time frame do we need to allow ourselves to know? Thriving is, is hard, and it's hard to measure. Agreed. I don't think that lets us off the hook for measuring it. I think there, again, have already been many other efforts undertaken to try and do that measuring and in a way that is mindful of the dangers and that we don't want to continue to attach a deficit label to those that aren't thriving, for example, like that's not going to be helpful. That doesn't in fact reinforce a virtuous cycle of thriving. So uh, perhaps let's not, not go that direction. Um, you know, I, I do think that this question of standardization, the question of time interval. It's really the question of why are we doing the assessment? What are we trying to gauge and for what 
you know, for what reason. And I think that the more ongoing, the more formative, the more really it's about um, a level at which you see adults who have the ability to shape what a young person will experience day in and day out, how it informs them and their choices and their practice, et cetera, feels to me like a logical place to start. I think the different dimensions of human well-being are ones that actually we've kind of already seen education try to figure out how to integrate. Um, there's been a lot of conversation in the field for a number of years about social and emotional learning. I think it's been an important conversation and one that probably still has some boundaries that need to be broken through and some, some more expansiveness could you know potentially be beneficial there. But if I think back to um, even before, you know, K-12 early learning and a lot of early learning spaces are really an accountability, quote unquote, accountabilities or indicators of young people's progress are really core human development indicators. And why once you get to K or first or third, especially if you're doing large scale standardized assessments, do those things fall away? And so I do think it's possible uh, to continue to gauge in a, you know, standardized and um, consistent way how young people are doing. I would continue to probably preference what that looks like to the degree that it's useful for the adults that are directly in relationship with young people. Mm -hmm. um, there will still need to be aggregate system indicators, of course. I'm curious if you have thoughts about that and how it, it plays out in the work that Stuart's done, right? If you're taking this more long-term integrated approach to the work that you're doing, are you using different kinds of metrics, different kinds of data, different kinds of information to let you know that your work is successful? We're thinking about, we're thinking about different kinds of data and a mix of qualitative and quantitative we're thinking about dimensions of thriving that, you know, include, yes, academic progress, um, you know, mastery of content, completion, credentialing, all of those things. We're also thinking about, you know, identity and belonging. And those are elements of well-being that can be seen and understood and, and, and measured. Um, we're thinking about, you know, how young people, um, through the lens of thriving are engaged in creativity and arts and expression. Again, those are things that can be measured. Um, and especially if we're thinking about measuring both the input side and the output side, there are ways to consider and in essence, tally are young people getting rich, high quality arts and creativity opportunities. Mm -hmm. So there's those kinds of things. We're thinking a lot about on the qualitative side, as you've heard me say earlier, youth voice. There's a whole number of ways in which we can be looking at these different dimensions of thriving. We're thinking about, um, you know, how young people more formally participate in democracy or the democratic process that data has been around for a long time. There's a, mm -hmm. there's a whole set of different incentives about why people keep track of, you know, quote unquote, the youth vote. Mm -hmm. um, and so, 
you know, those, those are all things I think that we, um, feel like are early indicators. And, um, again, at the foundation where, you know, we really started talking about this strategy 10 months ago. Um, and so we are still in our early stages and we are seeing again, I think in the, in the public education side, um, you know, what you might consider early or smaller attempts at using some of these additional indicators about well-being or about, you know, young people having uh, opportunities to engage in arts and creativity or indicators about how, um, you know, how do young people feel that they're connected to their community and, and want to um, be activated in support of their community. There are efforts already that are trying to track those things. Um, they haven't really been elevated up and they haven't really been brought into, uh, I think, again, the core of how we talk about what system accountability should look like. In education. Yeah. In education. No, yeah. I'm curious about your board, just because I know I talk to funders or, you know, folks who work at foundations and other organizations where, you know, our, our boards are often folks who aren't educators or researchers. So they're coming in with expertise in business and finance and sort of other areas. What are some of your takeaways around how we can engage boards um, in, in the shift in the way that we think about the return on investment or the ways in which we think about the impact that we have? That, that is also a significant question that has a lot of dimensions. I think it is a perennial question to some degree in philanthropy. You know, just where we started, even in this conversation, boards and trustees are people. And so the degree to which we can also continue to first start with that sense of human connection, of curiosity, of trying to understand um, really how do any individual member of our board see the world what they value etc i think that also then um presents an opportunity and invitation for them as human beings and not just as you know the people who formally hold governance responsibilities but they are also human beings and they have curiosities and they um you know may be excited about a learning journey those, I think, are some of the elements that we certainly tried to um, ensure were present in our choices about how to engage with our board, how to design board meetings, how to um, go through a process together of reflection, of exploration, of um, giving ourselves permission, both at the staff and the board level, to say, there's some really big, challenging, complex things unfolding out there. Isn't it okay that we in fact don't know? And that there are others out there who are looking at these same questions. What, you know, what is it for us to be in relationship with those others who are already engaged in these inquiries and may have, you know, other ideas, they may have other relationships, they may have other you know, strategies or tactics to engage in answering some of these core questions that we're also holding on to. That spirit and that orientation, I think, is a lot of a lot of what we try to um, present for our trustees as um, a way for them to to engage in and to think about this opportunity of refreshing our strategy 
to your point, really largely on the how. Those are different ways of doing it. I think what was really reassuring for them is that we did look back at our own history. We looked back at what we had done. We looked back at where we, um, based on grantees and based on, you know, other um, outcomes and results, seemed like the foundation had been useful and providing value to others. And so no need to take a hard left turn away from those things. And so if there is, again, this affirmation about who we are, who we know we are, who others know we are, and then from there moving into um, new ways to try to pursue a set of ideas, a set of inquiries, a set of relationships, uh, that I think has been really the the way that I would describe with our board um, a desire to move together. That's really interesting. I'm listening to you and hearing a lot of guests um, talk about if you want to do work a certain way, you have to equip the people doing the work with a different set of experiences to sort of then do the work differently. So just like we want teachers to experience places where they're trusted and get to take risks and do all that if that's what they want to create for students. If we want to do philanthropy differently, leaning into starting as human beings, leaning into relationships, leaning into conversations, right? And the time of sort of allowing allowing those things to take shape, um, that that's a really big part of it. Kenji, it was so great talking to you. Thank you so much for joining me. Yeah, this is a real honor and a privilege. I'm, I'm very grateful to have been able to participate. Thanks for listening. The Future of Smart podcast is a project of Grantmakers for Education and is made possible through the support of our generous member sponsors. If you like the podcast, please follow or subscribe and follow us on social media. You can find links to resources related to today's episode in the show notes. More episodes and events can be found at edfunders.org. To learn more about the future of smart, visit ulca.com, U-L-C-C-A.com.